Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And we've got a blockbuster of a story today to share with you. And a very timely story as well, because it involves election fraud on a grand scale, with a whole rattler's nest of crooked politicians, judges, district attorneys, law enforcement people, a corrupt machine to be exact, a machine that stretched all the way from Tennessee to Washington, D.C. in the late 30s and mid-1940s. And it took a few hundred returning World War II vets in 1946 to break it up, finally having to resort to guns and dynamite. These GIs called themselves the Fighting Bunch, and the incident became known as the Battle of Athens. And today we've got the author of the brand new book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the Revolution. And today we're very happy to have with us author Chris DeRose. Chris, how are you doing today? John, it's great to be back with you. Well, what a, what a prescient story you've picked here. There are a lot of Americans who are both concerned and others unconcerned about recent elections. I try to keep in touch with the news, and there's definitely a huge wave growing out there. And this story is very, very timely. Uh, when it comes to uh, election integrity and our voting freedom and how far some men were able to go to get it. Yes, it is. And when you're writing these books, you know, you, you're conceptualizing them years before they come out. And so you really have no idea what the world is going to look like when they hit the bookshelves. This really was a, was a coincidence that this book should find its way into bookstores uh, almost 75 years after the events depicted in the book. Uh, at a time of, you know, political violence in the United States and heightened concerns about election integrity and election fraud. Could you kind of uh, start off by giving us the condition of McMinn County, Tennessee, and what the and what the machine consisted of, and who was running it, and just how deep it went? I think that's probably the best place to start. Unless you'd like to start us in a different place, that's fine. That sounds great to me. So uh, McMinn County, Tennessee is in East Tennessee. It's a part of the state uh, that was intensely loyal to the Union during the Civil War. Uh, there had, had, you know, slavery was not a, a significant part of their economy. Uh, they wanted to stay with the Union. They voted against secession. And after the Civil War, it was a part of the South that had been dominated by the Republican Party. But whatever party it is, if they get control for too long, you tend to see the same things happening, right? You tend to see corruption, you tend to see complacency. And so you had a system of law enforcement where sheriff's deputies and police officers got paid based on how many people they could arrest, creating a really perverse incentive to throw people in jail for no reason to make a few bucks. And so Paul Cantrell, who was the youngest son of a prominent banking family in the community, inspired by FDR, runs for sheriff as a Democrat to try to break up this old regime. And he has an opportunity uh, to set things right. But instead, things seem to get a lot worse. Um, you have more arrests for money. And you have um, casinos and brothels operating with the protection of the political machine. Um, and you have elections that are increasingly dominated by violence and fraud. And so when Paul Cantrell's up for re-election in 1938, it tends to be kind of minor. There's a polling place that had voted against him pretty decisively where they just decide not to have an election that day. And where a ballot box gets moved into the courthouse, into the office 
uh, of a county official who was running on a ticket with Paul Cantrell. In 1940, things get a lot worse. Uh, you have the son of uh, a sheriff candidate arrested for campaigning outside a polling place. You have um, voting machines that the county board, the legislative body of the county, had decided to use because they're harder to steal or, or swap or uh, manipulate. And um, the sheriff and his men said, yeah, that's nice that you guys have uh, passed this ordinance requiring the use of voting machines. We're still going to use the boxes. Uh, and so you had um, you had people voting on some people voting on the machines, some people voting on boxes and um, the election commission, which, uh, you know, at the time, Tennessee as a state was dominated by the Democratic Party mm. and the local election commission would be two would be three members and two of the members would be from the same party as the governor. So the Democrats, any appeals from the election went to the commission, which was two to one uh, uh, Democrat. Um, and so so it's, it's very clearly a stolen election in 1940. They're not even really being subtle about it. And then things get even worse uh, after the young men uh, of McMinn County respond to the president's call after Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, 10% of this county, which is just an incredible number, not 10% of the eligible men, not 10% of the men, not 10% of the young men, 10% of everybody in this county went and served in World War II. So, you know, Tennessee prides itself on being the volunteer state. McMinn County prides itself on being the volunteer county of the volunteer state. And so while, while the young men are away, things get appreciably worse. I mean, we're talking about voters getting guns pointed at their face in the polling place. We're talking about sheriff's deputies walking in with giant uh, stacks of ballots and just putting them in ballot boxes in plain view of everyone. We're talking about ballot boxes that are brought into the jail to count in secret. Intimidation the, of voters. I know that, that sheriff's deputies were escorting some of the women into the voting booths, trying to intimidate them, looking over their shoulders. Absolutely. People and beat so, the deputies were beating guys over the head. I mean, th yeah, it was ridiculous yeah, it what was it. going on. And they would look at your ballot, too. So you'd hand the ballot in to be cast. They'd look at it, see who you voted for. Sometimes they even use see-through paper. Uh, and so people decided, look, the machine's going to win anyway. Uh, why am I going to show up and vote against these guys and risk, you know, getting a rock through the through my window or um, losing a contract for my business from the city? Um, and so people had really given up. So these young men like Bill White, who uh, was in the first offensive action of World War Two with the Marines, um, first American offensive action of World War Two with the Marines, uh, he, he and his cohorts came back. They're thrilled to be alive. They're thrilled to find out that so many of their friends have survived the war. And, you know, they realized that they had won the freedom of the world and returned to find that they had lost it at home. That while they were gone, getting shot at, getting shot, watching their friends die, their grandparents, their parents, their younger siblings had been harassed, intimidated, shaken down, arrested for profit uh, by these predatory deputies. And it was it was really incongruent with what they thought they were fighting for, what they had been told they were fighting for and um, and, and and what they hoped to see when they came home. And so, uh, you know, for, for most everyone else in America, the war ended when they came back in a sense that um, they came back to a democracy and they were able to stop fighting. Certainly was not true for the GIs of McMinn County. 
How deep did the corruption go? When I said it went from Tennessee to Washington, D.C., explain just how deep it went. I, I do know that at one point they were begging the Department of Justice to look into this. And uh, from what I understand, the Department of Justice, the guy who headed that was a Democrat and his two, two major senators were Democrat. And although the DOJ looked into it, they never acted on it. Yes, that's a really good question, because I'm sure some of your listeners are wondering, wait a minute, where's the state attorney general? Where's the local prosecutor? Where's the governor? Um, where's the DOJ on this? And when we and, found out, we found out how to get an attorney general to back out of the problem. We just offered him a two million dollar book deal, from what I understand. <laughs> is, is that what Cantrell yeah. did? No. Um, so this was part of a statewide machine run by Boss Crump out of Memphis. And... Um, Boss Crump um, controlled Shelby County, which was the most populous county in the state of Tennessee, I believe still is, and contributed a significant amount of the statewide vote total in a Democratic primary. And so remember, winning the Democratic nomination in Tennessee at this point statewide is tantamount to winning the election. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but Crump also realized, you know, he'd sort of covertly legalized gambling and prostitution in Shelby County, and he used this money to buy elections all throughout the state to help loyal uh, state legislative candidates win. And so Crump picked the governors, Crump picked the senators. I have examples in the book about, you know, a senator who made a, an important decision without consulting Crump and found himself out of a job two years later. I mean, there was nobody in Tennessee, no politician in Tennessee beyond his control. And so, so he dominates the state of Tennessee. The McMinn County machine is allied with the corrupt machine out of Memphis. And the, so, so that means that they can enjoy the support of the Congress, you know, members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress from Tennessee. They can enjoy the support of um, Tennessee senators. And, you know, Roosevelt and Truman, who are the you know, presidents at this time, uh, their White House has to at least be cognizant of the power that boss Crump has in the state of Tennessee. And so the individual uh, attorneys general at the Department of Justice are very sympathetic. They, uh, you know, it was not common at this time for the DOJ to intervene in local elections, especially if federal candidates born on the ballot, right? It just was not really seen as a federal issue back then. Part of it that they're distracted fighting the war, but really part of it is that, uh, you know, they have to tread carefully when they're, when they're in, um, boss crump's backyard and so there are two prosecutions during this time despite you know you said um people wrote hundreds of letters and signed affidavits and sent them to the doj i found them in a box oh, in man. the in the in the national archives if you've seen wow. the last scene if you've seen the last scene of raiders of the lost ark it's that room um <laughs> with just with just you know miles and miles of these boxes and um you know, you find all of these letters that these poor people had written during World War II while their loved ones are in harm's way defending democracy, telling these gut-wrenching stories about showing up to vote, you know, and getting hit with a nightclub by a sheriff's deputy or mm. um, not, not being allowed to monitor the count. Um, really, just really horrific. Yeah, there was a uh, congressman, was it uh, John Jennings? Who had, who had over a thousand affidavits and would have had a lot more except the people were afraid of uh, retribution. Yeah, a thousand signed affidavits. Congressman John J. Jennings Jr. Um, he was a Republican. He represented a, a district that was so Republican that not even Boss Crump could steal it from him. Um, and so he was one of the rare 
politicians in Tennessee to support and stick up for the people of McMinn County. And uh, he would, you, you find in his correspondence, which is at the University of Tennessee, all kinds of uh, letters and telegrams to J. Edgar Hoover, to various attorneys general, um, trying to get their attention and trying to get them to act uh, to ensure uh, representative government in McMinn County. Um, and, and really it was just heartbreaking to, to watch how, you know, the, the, the people responsible for protecting and enforcing these voting rights uh, didn't do what they needed to do. The people who do get prosecuted were low-level henchmen. In one case, they're given a slap on the wrist by mm-hmm. a corrupt judge. Um, and and I there mean, were a uh, lot of those, by the way. They keep coming up on every other page, all the corrupt judges. And there were, oh, there were yeah. opportunities here to turn this thing around, but the judges, you know, suddenly be driving a new car and their pocketbook would be bulging. And next thing you know, decision you against the, the plaintiff. Yeah, the Tennessee judiciary was elected. And so um, elections in Tennessee were uh, won by whoever Boss Trump, you know, said should win. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, you had a, you had a, I'll give you one example. Um, the Tennessee legislature, and it's really not clear to me whether they actually bucked Boss Crump or Boss Crump allowed himself to lose this vote for, for performance theater reasons. I don't know the answer. Hmm. Um, but there was just a ton of support for getting rid of the poll tax during World War II. This yes. idea that, you know what, my kids are off fighting a war and you're going to charge me a dollar to vote. Yeah, the people, that's right. That's a, a good, great democracy. point to bring up. The people had to pay a dollar. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was like decent money back then. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was, and you had to pay it by a certain date. And if you didn't, you were completely disenfranchised. Voting is supposed to be a free privilege, isn't it? Isn't it? I guess it's not written in the constitution. It's, it's not. And so, um, you know, I mean, ultimately when there were only a couple states left that had the poll tax, you know, you had, um, you had the poll tax get abolished, uh, I believe at the federal level, I'm going to get this wrong. At the federal level, by the at one level by the Supreme Court, the poll tax was abolished, and on another level, it was abolished by a constitutional amendment. Um, but but yeah, at the time, this was a very common practice, and the machines loved it because the machines the machines controlled the issuance of the poll tax or the poll tax receipts. So they would just give you a receipt, even if you'd paid for it or not. And if you were one of their voters, they would just give you the receipt. Um, and so the Tennessee legislature actually repealed the poll tax. It was their law. It was theirs to repeal. They repealed it either because Crump allowed himself to sort of take this loss for for uh, optics or, be, or or because this was just finally the one thing he, you know, he, he couldn't get everyone to follow his lead on. But then the Tennessee Supreme Court strikes down the repeal of the Tennessee poll tax. So the the state court of Tennessee, the highest court in Tennessee says that the legislature can't repeal its own poll tax, which is crazy, really, really unprecedented in the history of English and American jurisprudence that a legislative body can't just reverse themselves (laughs) on a law. But uh, it'll help you understand the outcome when you know that one of the Supreme Court justices had just been elected and called uh, Boss Crump our leader. (laughs) <laughs> so there's, there's your answer. So it went to the Supreme Court. I missed that one. That's Yeah, that doesn't yeah, surprise the, me at all. The Tennessee Supreme Court. Yeah, the Tennessee Supreme Court. Okay, Tennessee Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Yeah, and they yeah. heard a number of cases throughout this, and, and, and they always ruled with the Crump machine and, of course, their allies in McMinn County. The people here did what they were supposed to do. They wrote letters. They signed affidavits. They contacted law enforcement. They went to the courts, and they did this for 10 years. 
um, and, and, and could not get any relief. You know, the Defenders of Our Freedom is supposed to be the press. How did the newspapers, both local, regional, and national, fall on this matter between 1938 and 1946? Yeah, well, I actually think the, the press did an incredible job of covering the Crump machine. Uh, that was one institution in Tennessee that Boss Crump could not control. Okay. Uh, there, were, there were countless editorials and articles uh, critical of him and his candidates, uh, critical of his control over the state. Um, the problem is the press is only so good. The information the press provides is only so good as the public who reads it and acts on it, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, the, the, you have the, the um, I don't know, the Knoxville Daily Journal um, write an article talking about how, hey, we have, to, we have to vote down all of Crump's candidates. He's corrupt and it's really really terrible for the state of Tennessee. But if the people can't vote in a fair election, then the, what the press writes doesn't matter. And so you really have a trove of, of really great journalism here, people who, who doggedly covered the machine for years. And it was not necessarily safe to be a journalist in Tennessee at this time. We really think about this as being a problem in other countries. But there was, there was a reporter, there was an editor in the county next to McMinn who had tried to expose bootlegging in, in his newspaper and what they did was they took the um, the um, the it's like gasoline that he used to clean the keys for the printer, and they doused him with it and set him on fire. Mm. So this was not a, a, a safe place to be a critical journalist. But I think the the press really held up their end here. And during the Battle of Athens, when the bullets are flying and the, the bombs are flying, uh, the press was right there. I mean, you had yeah, um, you yeah had new radio. The local radio station was there and. Uh, newspaper yeah, yeah. journalist as well. You're right. They were they were on top of it and treating it fairly. I thought. Yeah, yeah. They did. They did. A, they, the press did a remarkable job here. The problem is that people couldn't respond to what they were reading and and you know react to it because they didn't have fair elections. What there were there was still a lot going on in the years leading up to 1946 when they, they did they pull the Cantrell's sheriffs uh, would go to the buses when the buses rolled in. And they would pull the Navy guys or the, I'm sorry, the GIs, any service, uh, off of the buses and declare they were drunk even when they weren't and then throw them in the local jail so they could get the 16 bucks uh, collected. And some of these uh, deputies were making uh, $30,000, $40,000 a year and driving nice cars just based on these uh, phony charges. Yes, yes. Being a veteran did not exempt you from being arrested for profit. In fact, it actually made you a target because these guys would be walking around in their uniforms, which, you know, these were depression kids who uh, joined the military at a formative time in their life and their bodies changed. And, you know, it was uh, it was the case that um, that many of them, in the case of their uniforms, remember, we had cloth rationing, too. So mm-hmm. the uniform, your uniform might be the only clothing you had that fit you. Yeah. Uh, so if you're coming back to McMinn County, there's cloth rationing. You don't have your old clothes. Um, so these these uh, GIs are very easy to spot, and the deputies knew that GIs had mustering out pay on them. So you mm-hmm. get a check, you get some money when you leave the military, and so the GIs would just arrest you at the bus stop and take your mustering out pay. These cowards who did yeah. not serve in the war, um, you know, using their authority to arrest these guys uh, who are coming back. You know, and in one case, uh, a veteran who was on leave for World War II was killed. In the case of Earl Ford. Uh, you know, was just was just murdered by the McMinn County Sheriff's Office. He was a, he was CB, wasn't he? He was a CB. Yeah. yeah. 
and there and there were other people who uh, were were getting either badly hurt or killed uh, in those years between uh, 1940 and 46, but before the big fight. Yeah, there were people. Look, there were people who disappeared. There yeah. was the case of. Um, a sheriff's deputy said, you know, I think it's, it's a good career move for me. And his dad said, you don't want to join up with these guys. And he said, no, no, I think this would be a good job. And so his dad actually kicked him out of the house, said no, nobody who works for this machine is going to live under my roof. Yep. And it seems like within a couple months, he had a change of heart. He was asked to do things. He saw things that his conscience just couldn't, uh, couldn't live with. And uh, he ended up being murdered by another police officer. Um, you know, his family thinks to keep him quiet because uh, he was going to resign from the force. Um, and so, yeah, there were people who disappeared. There were people who died, people who died under mysterious circumstances. There were people who died in jail. Um, and so, you know, a lot of their names and a lot of their circumstances we'll never know. But this certainly the, the, they did not draw the line at pointing a gun in your face or at, um, you know, chasing you out of the polling place. They were willing to do whatever it took to hang on to power. We'll return with our interview with Chris DeRose, his book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, right after these sponsor messages. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome back, everyone, to Krista Rose and the Fighting Bunch, a fantastic story here of how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the Revolution, and they got the right to vote and vote and vote freely and honestly, earning it the hard way in McMinn County, Tennessee. This would be a good point, Chris. Why don't we, uh, why don't we take it to the election of 1946, the situation in McMinn, how tense it was, and exactly what was going on? Yeah, sure. So... Um, you have uh, the GIs, they come back, they find this situation intolerable. They set aside their partisan differences. They say, look, more important than being a Republican, more important than being a Democrat is, is first our belief in democracy, our belief that we live in a representative government where we get to pick our leaders. And so we need to set aside our partisan differences and focus on beating the machine. And so uh, there's a GI ticket that meets uh, in secret. The planners meet in secret using military codes to communicate over the phone, meeting in barns, meeting in law offices, uh, meeting in, in the back rooms of uh, car dealerships, and they come up with a plan. Um, and so they have a convention. They nominate uh, five great candidates, four World War II veterans and one World War I veteran, uh, for office, both Republicans and Democrats. And it's a very balanced ticket. It's people who live out in the country, people who live in the big cities. It's a very well-balanced ticket, and it's it's the perfect ticket to, to offer a contrast uh, with the machine. Um, and so, you know, things look good. I mean, it's an interesting election in the sense that they never really had to convince anybody that, um, if, you know, we talked about the press earlier. There would be newspapermen who would come to McMinn County and be like, you know, they'd go into a cafe or a bar and say, okay, who's who's voting for who? And, you know, if they trusted the reporter, people would say, you know, they couldn't find a single person willing to vote for the machine. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the machine the machine couldn't get a hundred honest votes from people who didn't work for them, didn't rely on them financially, weren't scared of them. I mean, they really couldn't get a hundred honest votes in this county. And the machine uh, didn't need really to campaign either, right? It was these new GIs who were doing all the campaigning. Yeah, the machine kind of uh, stayed off the campaign trail, giving you a sense of how they planned on winning this. And the GIs went to every farm. It was interesting, you know, these guys were used to uh, campaigns in, in, in a different sense. And so they would have a map of the county and they would divide the county up by sectors and they would have people go barn to barn and house to house. They dropped leaflets out of a Piper Cub airplane uh, <laughs> over over the, the town. They drove around in a van with a loudspeaker uh, encouraging people to vote for the GI ticket. And it's one of the strangest political slogans in history. But their slogan was, your vote will be counted as cast. Um, because yeah. that was the only thing they needed to convince people. They didn't need to convince people that they were right. They didn't need to convince people that the machine was doing a terrible job. All they had to do was convince people that it was worth the risk to vote. Explain Sheriff Mansfield's role in this. Paul Cantrell is term limited as sheriff under the Tennessee Constitution. And so he becomes a state senator and goes to Nashville. Pat Mansfield, his chief deputy, uh, takes over his role as sheriff. Um, and if anything, the deputies, the department under Mansfield are, are even more aggressive uh, and even more uh, willing to arrest you for no reason or for, for a frivolous reason to get that money. Um, and so things are actually so bad that in 1946, Paul Cantrell tells Mansfield, you know what, um, I'm going to come back and run for sheriff and um, kind of try to right the ship a little bit here back home. Um, and so Paul Cantrell is the candidate for sheriff in the 1946 election against Knox Henry, who is a veteran of Operation Torch, North Africa, um, injured in a Jeep accident, came home and opened a filling station. He's uh, well-respected from a well-respected family. He's the GI nominee for sheriff. And so it's going to be a matchup between those two men and their respective slates for the future of McMinn County. And uh, Mansfield's thug deputy was Minnis Wilburn. Yeah. Minnis Wilburn would kill you for any reason or for no reason. He was a very uh, unassuming man. He was a little bit shorter than average, maybe a little bit smaller than average. You would not have expected uh, much trouble from him. But um, he was um, a very deadly adversary. He was not someone you wanted to get on the wrong side of. A lot of uh, disappearances and deaths uh, traced back to, to Minnis Wilburn, you know, on Election Day 1946. He's an election judge at the Dixie Cafe polling place. And he is allowing people to vote illegally all day long. People whose names aren't on the list coming in, casting ballots. And finally, a GI named Bob Harrell says, you need to stop this, right? He's objecting. And uh, Wilburn takes out his blackjack and hits Harrell over the head again and again and again. And then actually tries to draw his weapon, but he's in such a rage he can't get his gun out of his holster. Probably would have shot him. Bob Harrell, a veteran of World War II who survived fighting all across Europe, who nearly died at a polling mm. place in his own hometown a couple of years later, uh, and actually is, is hospitalized. And when he gets to the hospital, we find out that the sheriff's deputies stole his wallet mm. after they'd arrested him. Now, Bill White, Bill White was really the spark plug that got this whole thing going. What were the events that happened during the polling up to the close of the polling and then beyond that on that August day, 1946? Um, 
So you have Bob Harrell, who's been hospitalized for objecting to illegal votes. You've had GI poll watchers who have been arrested or kicked out of polling places throughout the day. And then you have Tom Gillespie, who is a beloved older figure in the community, African-American. But in the past, uh, he had never had any trouble voting. People of McMinn County had accepted the fact that you know, people of any race could vote for, for years before this. Um, he shows up to cast a ballot at the Waterworks polling place. And um, a, a sheriff's deputy by the name of Wendy Wise uh, tells him in terms I'm not going to repeat on the show uh, that he's not casting a ballot that day and hits him with brass knuckles, throws him out of the polling place. And Tom Gillespie is, is not going to give up. So he dusts himself up. He goes in. He stands in the polling place. Wendy Wise shoots him, mm. shoots him for trying to cast a ballot for the G.I.s. And you had a crowd in the courthouse square all day. They hear the shots. They've been they've been bracing themselves for violence throughout this campaign, throughout the day. Now it's come. So bloody Tom Gillespie is released um, and taken taken to the hospital. Uh, fortunately, he will survive. And actually, uh, I got to know people in, in Athens who knew Tom Gillespie quite well. He lived a good long life. Uh, in Athens as a, a beloved member of the community. Um, but they don't know that at the time. Um, and then you have um, poll watchers getting kicked out of polling places. It's the end of the day. You have poll watchers getting held hostage in polling places, like in the courthouse and in the waterworks. And so you have two GIs, Shy Scott and Ed Vestal, who are in the waterworks polling place where Tom Gillespie's just been shot. And they're being ordered to sit where they can't observe the counting of the ballots by the armed men who are running the polling place. And um, they can hear a fraudulent count taking place. They know that the machine's not winning that precinct five to one. And they get up to leave and they get guns pointed at them. And Shy Scott sees his dad arguing with Pat Mansfield in the street through the picture window of the waterworks, uh, sees that, okay, my dad's going to get himself mm -hmm. killed trying to get me out of here. And so if I don't get out of here, my dad's going to get killed trying to rescue me. And at that point, the publisher and editor of the News Athenian knocks on the door of the waterworks just to get a preliminary count. And, you know, he said, well, if they're going to if there's a time where they're not going to shoot me, it'll be right in front of the newspaper editor and, and publisher. And so they, um, you know, Shai Scott is a is an accomplished pilot of the Second World War, knows when to eject. And so he and Ed Vestal jump through the picture window or pick, basically it's a glass plated door and uh, land out into the street in a pile of glass. They're bloody. They get up with their hands raised in the air and they walk across the street into the crowd with guns pointed at their back the entire time. And we're pretty lucky not to have been shot in the process. Uh, but now people are mad, right? Now people are mad that, that they've had to watch these GIs get mistreated and abused and Tom Gillespie's been shot and Bob Harrell's in the hospital. Um, and these guys have been have been arresting poll watchers all day, arresting members of the media who were taking too many pictures. Um, people are starting to get angry. And so they gravitate toward Otto Kennedy's tire shop. Otto Kennedy, uh, tough guy, bail bondsman, tire store owner, head of the Republican Party in the county who had allied with the GI ticket, um, looking to Otto for guidance. And they're in, the GIs are, are in Otto's garage looking for guidance and, and Mansfield sends three deputies to arrest them. Well, that's not <laughs> enough. Um, and so those deputies actually found themselves uh, beaten up, disarmed, tied up and thrown uh, in a, in a, um, in a pile. And um, so now the line's been crossed after 10 years 
the people are actually fighting back against these deputies. So they resume the meeting. And then um, another group of, of sheriff's deputies show up. Same result. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, a third group and, uh, and same result. And so they've got all these, these, they ended up with seven deputies hostage, took their guns, said, okay, now what do we do? And so they just made the decision to drive them off into the woods and, um, and, you know, some cases they tied them up to trees. They took their clothes. Uh, they left them in the middle of nowhere and drove back to town. Um, and so now you got a dwindling group of GIs downtown. The situation has gotten really too hot for people, even people who were, you know, brave World War II veterans who said, look, we've just beaten up a bunch of cops. We, we stole their guns. We tied them up. This is too hot for me. I'm going home. So you got a dwindling number of GIs downtown. And you really could have seen a scenario where um, they just sort of given up and said, well, you know, we tried. Because at this point, Mansfield, uh, you know, they control the courthouse. They control the ballots from the Waterworks polling place. That's in the jail. And the ballot from the Dixie Cafe has also been moved to the jail to be counted in secret. And there's enough votes in those precincts to, to call the election, um, especially when you include the precincts that they control in Etowah, which is... Um, the hometown of Paul Cantrell. Um, Bill White really is not interested in going home. Um, Bill White was a tough kid from the mountains, a Depression-era boy like the rest of them. He had enlisted in the Marines in the days after Pearl Harbor, fought all the way through the Guadalcanal campaign, and was wounded on Tarawa, mm -hmm. which is one of the lesser-known uh, lesser but, but bloodier and, and more... Um, one of the most heroic actions uh, of um, U.S. military personnel in, in that war or any war. Um, and so Bill White's not interested in, in going home. He said, we promised these people their vote would be counted as cast. We promised them if they showed up and voted, we'd make sure they got a fair count. And that's not going to happen unless we do something about it. And then that's going to require us um, matching them strength for strength. And so they realize, so he sends everyone home to get their guns and an even smaller number come back, get a small handful of guys. You know, I was told at the beginning when I started doing my research in Athens, everybody has an uncle who fought in the Battle of Athens. <laughs> um, everyone will tell you about their uncle who fought in the Battle of Athens. It is a very small number of men, maybe 20 men, maybe 20 men that um, showed back up for that decisive stand. And they showed up and they said, okay, Bill realized, Bill had been in a lot of firefights. So we really don't have the firepower to go up against these deputies in the jail. Um, and so they actually went and robbed the National Guard Armory. Um, several carloads of GIs showed up and um, I don't know if overpowered is the right word, but you know, the, the, the one caretaker could do the math <laughs> that he had three carloads of angry GIs who wanted to get inside the strong room uh, caretaker was also very sympathetic uh, to what they were trying to do. So um, they went in, they, you know, a lot of them had been in the National Guard. And um, it was also a special events venue where you'd have magic shows and wrestling matches. And so they were familiar with the layout of the armory. And so they took all the guns and ammo out of the armory. And about 20 of them uh, march uh, on the jail. Now, the street across from the jail is at about a little higher elevation. It's about 13 feet high. And there's a bluff. You have trees and vines and bushes with limited visibility. And so it was a great place, uh, you know, for the GIs to take cover. And they demanded the ballot boxes be brought out of the jail for a fair count. 
jail refused. The shooting starts. And you made you made a great point early on in the interview about the newspapers and the radio about uh, the local guys and how well they were trying to cover this. Would you mind if I read uh, a section from the Guns of August, one of your chapters? Absolutely. And at, at this point, it was it was guns that people the battle was was raging. Tom Raines was a J.B. Collins editor at the News Free Press. All day he'd been getting calls with increasingly crazy details, including his reporter getting jailed and having his film destroyed. He decided to drive to Athens himself. Raines found Collins squatting near the GI position on the embankment. He was disappointed. I thought you said something was going on up here. I haven't seen a thing. It's quieter than a church. A bullet struck the tree just over his head, causing leaves to fall around him, and he joined Collins on the ground. Alan Stout resumed his broadcast for WORL radio. No one knows how many are injured, he whispered, but the crowds are mad. It's one of the greatest dramas in our time. The office here is in total darkness, and the people on the street below are talking loudly and laughing. Not because they're glad, but it's a sort of nervous, hysterical laugh. And then was a burst of gunfire. I mean, you, you've uh, every every personality, every person involved in this. You've done a really good job of getting the real story out of it, and it continues like that, page by page. It's a very, very well written report. Uh, thank you very uh, much. Yeah, no, I'm not, not going to give everything away to our listeners, but I'd like you to I'd like you to wrap it up and kind of tell us uh, what went on. So first, you know, I owe a real debt of gratitude to those reporters who who got those accounts heroically and at the risk of their own lives and their safety. And really made for you know journalism is the journalism is the first draft of history and never was it more true than in this case. But of course, uh, you know. This book has a happy ending. The GIs are able to successfully liberate their town and uh, return free elections to McMinn County. And to give you one example, a year later, um, you know, they rev- everyone reverts to their partisan corners and the Republicans win the election. But the Democrats in McMinn County took out a full page newspaper ad in 1948 to say, you know what, we had a fair election and we thank you for it because that had not historically been the case in the county. And so that's how much they turn things around. They restore democracy to their home county and they got in with the lives that they, they got on with the lives that they had planned on leading when they came back from World War II. They married their sweethearts, they had children, they took over the family business, they started their own business, they went and got jobs and had the, the, the homecoming that they were denied when they stepped off the bus. And listeners, there's a huge story here. I want you all to pick up The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens by Krista Rose. It's out there now, Amazon and everywhere else, anywhere, everywhere that fine books are sold, I think is how the saying goes. I'd like to give you a little, another quote from page 276. And this was a kind of a wrap-up that Eleanor Roosevelt uh, was willing to speak up and give us. But the most important word belonged to the most popular woman in the country, Eleanor Roosevelt, who made the battle the subject one of, her, of one of her regular columns. We may deplore the use of force, but we must also recognize the lesson which this incident points for us all, she wrote. And that took a lot of courage for her to write that. People must be able to determine their fate at the ballot box in a fair election. Ultimately, Americans would not accept living under tyranny. The decisive action which has just occurred in our midst is a warning, and one which we cannot afford to overlook. She was a wise woman, and she was a great writer, and she... uh very succinctly captured the lesson for the time. Uh, you know, the, these GIs came in under a lot of fire from editorial boards around the country for vigilantism and taking the law into their own hands. But they had tried everything else for 10 years. They had gone to court. 
they had had their, um, you know, they had had the election fraud in that county publicized in excruciating detail in major newspapers. They had written hundreds of letters to the Department of Justice. They had contacted the governor of Tennessee. They had contacted the attorney general of the United States. There was no hope for these men outside of the stand that they took. And that's one of the things we have to remember. You know, when we talk about this, this could never happen today because people have their iPhones. They would be filming what was happening in McMinn County. The DOJ would get involved. Um, this was a, a sui generis situation for these young men. It was a unique situation where they found themselves having to take this stand or surrender perhaps forever their right uh, to choose their own leaders and pick their destiny by by picking their leaders and uh, really made the only decision that they could. Well said, Chris. And thank you very much for this interview. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you being able to, able to give us a good look at this uh, story, which is an incredible, incredible true story of what really happened uh, in Tennessee. John, it is always it is always a good time being on your show. I have to write another book just so I can come on. Yeah, well, that's we'll always we're always here with ideas too. Although I didn't supply either one of these, but uh, there, two years ago we did the Star Spangled Scandal with Chris, and another excellent book that I want you all to look for yeah. if you haven't picked it up yet. That was a a ter tremendous book about, and that puts us back in Washington D.C. back in eighteen what was the year eighteen fifty nine fifty nine, and uh, there that was a. A year of scandal. When isn't it a year of scandal in Washington, D.C.? I don't know. We still haven't found that yet. <laughs> but Chris, thank you for your, your great books. Thank you for this interview. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll be talking again soon. Thanks, John. I thank look you. forward to it. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.